Bridget and Claire, thank you very much. We're going to be turning to the passage in Isaiah in a few moments' time. We're up to chapter 63, as I said. If you want to catch up on the previous 62 chapters, you can go online and listen to them all. And uh, last week, I I tried to paint a picture of um, just the amazing prophecy that Isaiah brings, is that if you imagine a a scene of a a mountain range, um, in, in many ways, he's prophesying for the now into his own situation, but he's also prophesying about what will be, and he's prophesying even about the very, very far future, the end of the world as we know it. And uh, sometimes we, we see Isaiah as that blank, just that picture of the mountaintops. We don't see the gaps in between as much, and we don't know how much Isaiah would have realized what he was saying. But it is incredible in the light of the New Testament, in the light of all that we know about Jesus, how much of Isaiah is just so um, full of the gospel of Jesus. So in a few moments, we're going to look at Isaiah 63, verses 1 to 6. And uh, just recapping from chapter 61, there was a trailer of this passage, of this theme, in Isaiah 61, when uh, there was that quote from uh, Jesus, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for he is anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. And uh, we remember how Jesus took that prophecy on his lips when he went to Nazareth in the synagogue and he said, today that is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus said that that prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled in their hearing. He was the one who spoke that word in Isaiah 61. And, but he stopped at the year of the Lord's favor. You remember that in Luke 4? If you, if you don't know the passage, read it. He stops with the year of the Lord's favor. Whereas the passage in Isaiah goes on to talk about the day of vengeance of our God, which is what we're dealing with uh, tonight. And then in Isaiah uh, 62 last week, we looked at the return of the king. Uh, Isaiah sees this amazing vision of the Savior coming with his reward, and it's picked up in Revelation. Jesus is coming back, and his reward is with him. Who's his reward? It's us, those who have believed in his name. And the new Jerusalem, the new holy city, not just a city built of bricks and mortar and stones, but living stones that will be presented as a beautiful bride. They're the good passages. This one is slightly harder. So I'm going to read it to you now. Chapter 63. In my Bible, the title is God's Day of Vengeance and Redemption. Who is this coming from Edom, from Bosra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. 
I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. All right? Okay. And uh, I want to read a passage from Revelation 19, verse 11 to 16. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. In my notes, I put chapter 63, verse 1 to 6 approach with care. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Bible. It is a lamp unto our feet. In its pages, we are invited into relationship with you. In its pages, we hear you speak, we see what you do, we hear your promises, we are challenged. There are things we do not understand, but we trust you because of what we do know of you is that you are good, always, forever. You are gracious, always, forever. You are mighty to save. You are just. You are the King of kings. And the Lord of Lords. Give us ears to hear what you might say to us through these passages in Jesus' name. Amen. A year is a long time, it lasts 365 days, 8,760 hours, 525,600 minutes, and how many seconds? Roughly 31.5 million. There you go. And then the year ends. As I get older, years seem to be going quickly, but I know that they still number the same days and same minutes and seconds. We know a year doesn't last forever. How many of us remember sort of the, the year 2000 and thinking, wow, the year 2000. And now we're approaching 2020 and think, where did that go? A year doesn't last forever. Not even the year of the Lord's favor doesn't last forever. We know that the year of the Lord's favor is not a literal year. It's that time that God is ordained to save, to rescue, to redeem. Since Jesus came to save, we are living in that time, the year of the Lord's favor. We are proclaiming the Lord's favor to everyone that we meet who would listen 
to the good news that Jesus came to rescue them. As I said at the beginning, we remember when Jesus quoted from Isaiah 61, he stopped at that verse. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And last week we talked a little bit about Jubilee and how Jesus fulfills the Jubilee, that salvation, that redemption, the cancelling of sins. And then in chapter 62, how he will come again to make all things new. In fact, the vision that we had before us was that God would bring a new heaven and a new earth together. He would make all things new and it would be perfect. And that will be the end of history as we know it. Jesus coming to make all things new. So it's a bit jarring when we come to Isaiah 63. If you read those consecutively, Isaiah 61, 62, you think, good news, Isaiah 61. Great news, Isaiah 62. And then suddenly you screech to a halt in Isaiah 63 because it's jarring. And you're faced with those questions of what happens to those who reject Jesus, what happens at the time of his judgment. And this terrible scene bursts upon us with the suddenness of judgment itself. Some might even say it comes unexpectedly in Isaiah as you read it, like a thief in the night. Jesus said himself, the Son of Man will come at an hour you do not expect him. He also said, no one knows except the Father when he will return. And these verses, as we approach the end of Isaiah's amazing prophecy, is a turning point. It's the kind of the last curve in the road till we come to the home straight. The grand finale of Isaiah. And history as we know it will not go on forever. And yet although this crashes in us on us unexpectedly, paradoxically, we are told that we should be expecting it. Jesus talks about parables about being ready for his coming. I'll come like a thief in the night. No one knows when I'm coming, but be ready. Be prepared. Keep watch. And this beginning of uh, chapter 63 deals with this, the other side, the obverse of the reality of the previous chapter. It's Isaiah's description of the day of vengeance of our God. Now, in common usage, we very rarely use the word vengeance. I don't know how often you've used the word vengeance in the last week. And when the word vengeance comes to mind, it doesn't seem to have good connotations. There are not many good things that you could... What, what, what comes to mind when you hear the word vengeance? Just say a few words. Word connection. Vengeance. Judgment. Revenge. Nastiness. Yeah, that's what I was going through. I wrote down retribution, punishment, reckoning. And then I went to my dictionary and started looking at retribution. And it pointed me to punishment. Punishment pointed me to requital. 
I have never heard the word requital. So I looked up requital as well. And it meant to avenge. So I went round in a circle. But the word requital and the word to avenge in one of the dictionaries that I looked at was to repay evil. Repay evil. And so when we hear the word vengeance, we kind of, we don't like it. And in some ways, it seems to us to be the opposite of love. Yet the Bible insists, and this is our authority, we can't make it up, we can't just pick and choose the bits we like. The Bible insists there is a time and a place for God's vengeance. And I'm so grateful that God's vengeance is different from our vengeance. God's vengeance is not malicious. It's not vindictive. It is just. And without his judgment, evil and all the hosts of evil will never be dealt with. Wrongs will never be righted. That's the word. And there will be no moral government in the universe. Without that judgment and that justice, there will be no new heaven and new earth. It is that final calling to account that God brings. Remembering that the God who brings it is the God who made the world, loves the world, gave himself for the world. He can't love it any more than he does, but he has to bring his justice. And these verses call us to think about that calling to account. The world must account for the choices that it has made, whether it be nations, kings, rulers, people. And these verses warn us not to underestimate the Messiah. Throughout Isaiah, we have seen that God is holier than we think. He is more powerful than we think. He is more gracious than we think. He is sterner than we think. And he is more loving than we think. He is both the savior and the judge of humanity. The work of Messiah is in both salvation and judgment. And we read that passage from Revelation 19. Because it kind of echoed the passage in Isaiah 63. But did you notice one of the lines? It said, with justice, he judges and wages war. God's grace always comes first. The year of the Lord's favor comes first before the day of vengeance of our God. Remember when Jesus came to Jerusalem that final time, when when he rode into Jerusalem, just as he got to that brow of the hill on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem, what did he do? He weeps over the city. 
Why does he weep? He says, if you, even you, had only known the time of God's coming to you, if you had only recognized the time of God's coming to you, you would have had peace. And they didn't. And historically, we know disaster followed. AD 70, it was razed to the ground by the Romans. Jesus was warning, not just them, but us all. Rejection of Jesus, rejection of the Messiah, rejection of the Savior can only lead to disaster. Isaiah 63 contains a couple of questions posed by the prophet, we assume. But the other words that are written down through the prophet come from the Messiah. We have this picture for us that the Messiah didn't just come to save us for heaven. He came to save us from something as well. The wonderful verse, John 3.16, that we often use as an evangelistic verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It's the most amazing verse. Capsulates the gospel, doesn't it, in just one line. For God so loved you that he gave himself for you. That whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, won't perish, but have eternal life. He doesn't want us to perish, but have eternal life. That's why he came himself. What more could he do? He humbles himself. He leaves his throne in heaven. He becomes a human like us. He dies on the cross for our sins. He gave everything for us that we might be saved. And that we might not perish, but have eternal life. In Revelation, we have that picture very clearly painted for us. And then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead and that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I'm with you. We don't understand completely the imagery of Revelation. But what we do have painted for us is that there will come a day when God brings that judgment, the just judgment upon the earth. And he will root out all sin and evil from the earth once and for all. Now in verse 1 of chapter 63, if you remember it, it mentions Edom. He comes from Edom. Now, Edom 
represents the enemies of God. There was no other nation more persistently hostile towards ancient Israel than Edom. And therefore, in this passage, we can read Edom as symbolizing a world at war with God, a world in rebellion against God, a world that hates God's people, and a symbol of all who reject the Savior. And then there's the description of the one who comes, whose garments are stained crimson. And the first question is, who is this? robed in splendor? And the answer is, it is I. Or you could put in there, I am. Who comes? It is I, robed in splendor, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. There will come a day when all evil will be dealt with. prophet asked another question, why are your garments red? Isaiah asks, who and why? What has been happening? The who is, it is God himself who comes. It is I, I am. And he has trodden the nations in the winepress of his wrath. He has come To bring judgment. But it's this reference to Edom that gives us the key to this passage. And the key to this passage is given in terms of God's special relationship with his people. There are times when we, I'm sure I'm not the only one who kind of feels that the forces of evil have sway in the world. There is so much evil in our world. So much pain and suffering in our world. Sometimes we are tempted to think the enemy is triumphing. And then we look at the cross. And we find there a window into the heart of God where anyone looking at that moment when Jesus was crucified would have said, the enemy has triumphed. The Son of Man, the Son of God is crucified. God is crucified. But in that very moment, God is bringing victory through his suffering and his sacrifice. Ask the persecuted church what normal Christian life is like. The World Watch list of Open Doors lists the top 50 countries of persecuting nations where it's hardest to be a Christian. It estimates 245 million Christians are intimidated, imprisoned or killed. 245 million. One in nine Christians around our world lives under persecution. If I was to count you off, one in nine. One in six in Africa. One in three in Asia. And in North Korea, one in one. Every Christian is persecuted.
As we were reminded in our series in Revelation recently, Revelation to some of us is like a a window onto what happens in the end times. And the persecuted church tell us, no, that's what's happening now. It's happening now. This is our story. Others ask me, especially on Alpha courses, if God is all-powerful, if God is all-loving, why does he allow such suffering? And we have no brilliant answers, except he is wanting to save. Because when he comes in judgment, that will be the end. We are living in the year of the Lord's favor. There is time yet to be saved. Time yet to come to know the Savior of the world. But there will come a day when that year of the Lord's favor will end and the day of vengeance of our God will come. Judgment is coming. All evil, Satan and all his demons, all the demonic strongholds, all the powers and principalities will be dealt with. All the injustices will be dealt with. All the rebelliousness against God will be judged. And everyone will face Jesus, the one who is the judge. Saul of Tarsus, before he became a Christian, set out to persecute the church, set out to wipe out the church. And he discovered something really important. That if you persecute the church, you persecute Jesus. What did Jesus say to him when he encountered him on the road? Why are you persecuting me? Through these passages, we see that God will stand up for his church. It will not go on forever. Paul realized that he was standing in opposition to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he was called to a new life, serving the Lord Jesus. Told that he would suffer many things too, and he did. But counted it a blessing that he was called to serve the Savior of the world. All will stand before Jesus one day. And it will be either terrifying or the most amazing, glorious, joyful day we can imagine. To meet him as his enemy and adversary will be painful. We do give thanks that evil will be done away with. All the abuse, all the pain that has been wrecked in our world. And that suffering will end. I love this quote from Thomas More that I hold in my heart because, and I use it from time to time on Alpha, I know. There is no earthly sorrow that heaven cannot heal. Think of all the terrible things that have been done on earth. But there is no earthly sorrow that heaven cannot heal. And
and God's people, the redeemed, the holy ones, the bride, the new Jerusalem will be presented before the Lord and then there will be the new heaven and the new earth. But there will also be a moment of separation. We can't fudge it. We can't avoid it. I'm sorry. I want everybody to be saved. I do. But I cannot say everyone will be saved no matter what you think or believe because it's only through Christ that we can be saved. So the redeemed will meet Jesus as Savior and Lord. God's people, the special objects of the enemy's hatred will be presented without fault and with great joy. I was visiting uh, a dear saint this week and uh, we were just talking about things and she'd obviously been reading her Bible. When she went into the home, they said, what are your hobbies? And she said, reading the scriptures. I was just, good on ya. And she was talking about members of her family And there's a great history of faith in her family. But she said there are some within her family who do not believe in Jesus. Who who actually are are quite angry with Jesus for some reason. And she said, what will happen to them on that day, Philip? What will happen to them? Because they're really good people. They'll do anything for anybody. They're so good. I said, are they really, really good? Yes, they're so good. If you met them, that you know... But they hate Jesus. Yes. Why do they hate Jesus? Because of all the pain and suffering in our world. I said, it's nothing to do with Jesus. God has an enemy who is wreaking havoc upon the earth, but his time is coming to an end. How can you stand before Jesus and say, well, I was good and I was a good person, but I hated you. And he's the savior of the world. He's the one who died for our sins. He's the one who's made the way for us, who is the way. I said, I can't tell you how God will judge because we don't know. We're not the judge. But I wouldn't stand before him as someone who would hate him. I wouldn't stand before Jesus as someone who had rejected him and stand in my own merit. My own merit is like filthy rags. I need a savior. We all need a savior. But only the Lord knows all the details, the hearts. And I know for a fact that people whose families sometimes say to me when I've done funerals, oh, well, they weren't religious, they weren't Christians, they weren't believers. And I said, do you know he made a commitment on his deathbed to Jesus? No. He's going to be at home with the Lord Jesus. They didn't know. Because he hadn't been a churchgoer. But he was reconciled to Jesus. We don't know, do we? But there is coming this day. This passage in Isaiah assures us that nothing, that the church suffers, and it suffers greatly, and more now than ever, goes unnoticed. And that wickedness will be repaid, 
in full. Either through the forgiveness of the blood of the Lamb, or it will be judged on that day of vengeance of our God. But we are not the judges, and we are not the avengers, praise the Lord. And we place all into the hands of the Lord Almighty. But we do have a mission, because we are still in the year of the Lord's favor. Until he comes, we're in the year of the Lord's favor. That's why we want to make him known. But let's not fool anyone into thinking that the day of vengeance is not coming. It is coming. We don't know when it's coming. But when it comes, it will be a glorious, glorious day for those who have received Christ. And we want to make that as available as widely as we can. It's not a popular message, is it? We're not really a church that preaches fire and brimstone, are we? But we preach the Bible. So that's why we have to address these things. We don't major on it because we major on the cross and of Jesus' love and his grace towards us. But we would appeal to anybody, don't stand against Jesus. What is it about Jesus that you do not like? Ask people. Not the church. Because that's a different thing. But about Jesus. It's all about him. So let's give ourselves no rest. I found this quote in one of the commentaries. That we might become more God-exalting, Christ-admiring, Holy Spirit-receiving and revering Bible reading, grace preaching, cross embracing, risk taking, self denying, gossip silencing, prayer saturated, joyful, spirit filled people of God. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask Alan and the band to come back and we're going to worship as response.